Welcome, everyone. You're on localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson, and you're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance programs. And today, we have expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, before we dive into today's topic, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as you said, I spent 25 years in government. Uh, I started off at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where I worked in the Office of Legal Counsel and various other legal roles at the EEOC. And then I came over to OFCCP as the Deputy Director for Policy and eventually became the Regional Director for the Midwest region of OFCCP. Okay, okay. Well, we brought you in today because you recently wrote an article about how whites or non-minorities can be the unexpected victims of race discrimination. Can you elaborate or break down what you're describing here? Well, you know, the civil rights laws, uh, both Title VII, which is enforced by the EEOC, and Executive Order 11246, which is parallels Title VII to a certain degree and is enforced by OFCCP, both of those arose out of civil rights movement, which was targeted against uh, discrimination, basically against African Americans. And so the laws were written in a way, and the mindset at that time was that minorities, uh, African-Americans and others, were the ones who were most likely to be experiencing racial discrimination. However, as the laws are drafted, they were drafted to protect any race. So the issue of whites being discriminated against on the basis of race actually is in the law that that's prohibited. So it's not simply for minorities, it's also for non-minorities, but it doesn't come up nearly as often. It has evolved a little slower over time you know, how to look at these things. And so that's really what we're looking at today. Okay. And in the article, you stated that uh, disparate treatment or and disparate impact are theories that maybe likely caused this reverse discrimination. What exactly is that? Well, I wouldn't say they caused it. When you're trying to figure out how to prove if racial discrimination has happened, you need some construct for how to look at this. How do I tell whether or not discrimination is at work? And these two theories, disparate treatment and disparate impact, are the main theories that are used uh, to organize the argument as to whether or not discrimination occurred. In disparate treatment, you're talking about uh, that the fact that you belong to a certain race has caused the employer to treat you differently, usually less favorably, uh, because of the membership in that race. So if I have certain stereotypes about the capacities of certain race groups, then I may not hire you because I see you and I see someone who has characteristics I don't want in the workforce just because of your membership in a race group. With disparate impact, we're not talking about an intent. Uh, Disparate treatment means somewhere I meant to do what I did to you because of your racial group. Where disparate impact, we're looking at, I did something to you that I do for everybody. So I have a rule that applies to every single person, like everybody has to have a certain level of education. Uh, But given the racial history Uh, of this country, maybe certain groups have had less of an opportunity to secure that qualification. So even though I'm applying a standard to everybody, it's falling more harshly on a particular racial group. So that's disparate impact. And it's against these two theories that we look at how uh, discrimination on the basis of being of the white race 
uh, is played out in the law. Okay. All right. Okay. That that definitely helps sort of clear it up a little bit. For our listeners, can you sort of dive into the case law to describe some of the significant factors that resulted that that can possibly result in the unexpected race discrimination victim being whites or non minorities? Certainly. Uh, actually, I really worked at trying to not say reverse discrimination, which is okay. more more commonly how people refer to this kind <laughs> of discrimination. But it's really not reverse discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination, as so many people have said before me. So I was very sensitive to that in talking about the unexpected victim. When they first, one of the biggest cases that set out how do we think about proving discrimination was McDonnell Douglas Corp versus Green. And that case, uh, it, it was back in the 70s. And they uh, basically set out a proof pattern. And the first element of the proof was to show that the person belonged to a racial minority. Well, clearly, if you have a, a white complainant in the United States, it's not going to be someone who's a member of a racial minority. So courts for a while were trying to figure out, well, what do we do about the, the white plaintiff or the white complainant? Because they can't show that first thing. So in, uh, in a case in the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C. Circuit, Harding versus Gray, what they wanted to substitute was that you had to show that somehow this was the unusual employer who would discriminate against the majority, as opposed to, I guess, what they thought was the more usual situation where an employer would discriminate against a minority person. Now, that, what that extra something was was also a matter of debate for quite a while. You know, how much of an additional showing did you have to have? And it became actually over time a thinner and thinner showing. I may include things like showing you were more qualified than the person was hired and that kind of thing. But eventually, uh, as courts thought more and more about this issue and the different circuits you know, rule in different ways, uh, there was a case that came out of the Third Circuit in the late 90s, uh, in 1999, where it said, well, basically, we shouldn't have one standard for white complainants and a different standard for minority complainants. That basically, you should have the same kind of evidentiary showing required, regardless of the race that the person who's bringing the case belongs to. And that is, at this point, the EEOC and presumably OF, although OFCCP has not been quite as direct about what their proof patterns are, uh, that they, they're using the same standard at this point, it would seem, for both complaints brought by whites because they believe they've been discriminated against on the basis of race, as well as minority complainants. So it has been, it's taken a little while to get there, but I think at this point, that's pretty much where both should be, because OFCCP is supposed to follow EEOC's lead. Technically, EEOC is the lead agency on employment discrimination in the federal government, so none of the other uh, federal uh, entities can come up with something that's uh, opposed to what the EEOC does. So if that's the EEOC standard, I would presume that would be the OFCCP standard. Okay. Although when I was there, that wasn't at all clear, and I was operating on the, uh, the, the have to show something more because I come from D.C. So that had always been the way that, you know, that it was taught to me. But if you ever encounter someone who thinks you have to show more and they're working at OFCCP, you do have this uh, uh, information from the EEOC that you can point them to. Okay. So if the premise is that, it's, that there is no difference in showing regardless of the race, you know, the color of your skin, are there any sort of obstacles that a white complainant might face over a minority in p- trying to prove their point? Well, I think that it's not so much the, uh, what, what the white complainant would face as how the employer has to begin to think about these things. 
because the, in the, well, in, let, me, let me separate two things out. One, the EEOC tends to get more of the individual complaints because if a person files an ind- individual race complaint saying I personally was discriminated against by this employer and there's nothing else except just me, it's not a class, it's nothing like that, then the OFCCP would send those uh, kinds of cases to the EEOC to decide. At the, at the OFCCP, the way most cases start is you have a critical mass of, of employment actions and they run statistical analyses on them to see if there's a pattern of practice of discrimination, which basically is an intent standard like disparate treatment, but the intent is drawn from the inference that you can have when you have statistically significant disadvantages that are identified uh, in a selection process. So there are a couple of things to look at. One, uh, in the individual case, if you were to bring a complaint because you perceived yourself to be discriminated against based on uh, being a person who is a non-minority or white, then you'd show the comparators and you'd explain why it is that you think the circumstances suggest race is the reason. Uh, On the other hand, at OF, they would get, like say, a bunch of hires and they'd run the numbers and you'd see whether or not there was a statistically significant lower selection rate for whites. And that is one of the reasons I think it comes up so much uh, so rarely at, at OFCCP, because when you look at the volume of hires over an extended period of time, like an AAP year, quite often you're not going to, you just aren't going to get the standard deviations disadvantaging the white applicants. Okay. So then, and you said so that it's rare. So it's not something that that happens very often. Now, in the article, you also state that whites or non-minorities attempting to prove any sort of discrimination typically requires, you know, the additional showing of background circumstances. Can you explain to our listeners what that exactly means? Well, nowadays, they wouldn't usually have to do that, okay. not at the administrative level. Uh, they had to show background circumstances in the, the case I mentioned, the Harding versus Gray case. But the EEOC, when I was doing this research, they did have a kind of digest that they put out in which they explained that they recognize that other courts sometimes require those extra background circumstances, but that uh, the commission applies the same standard of proof to all race discrimination claims, regardless of the, the victim's race. So in that case, uh, you would have the same showings. Now, it may be that sometimes because mon- uh, non-minority applicants or employees aren't used to thinking of themselves as the victims of race discrimination, they may be somewhat less familiar with how, you know, these things are proven. I mean, a person can come in and apply for a job. And if they're not selected, but someone of a different race with the same or greater qualifications who applied later is, is selected, then you can at least come in and offer, you know, say that you have what they call a prima facie case, where it looks like I was passed over and then you went and found someone else and the only difference between me and the person you ultimately hired is our race. So if a white plaintiff shows up, they have qualifications, and, some, and, and they apply first. Let's say they apply a month before. The whole hiring thing continues to go on. A month or two later, a black uh, applicant with same or better or same or lesser qualifications applies, and they hire them. Then the white uh, applicant can raise the question, well, wait a minute, I was already here. If that's what you were looking for, what reason other than race did you have for selecting this second person and not selecting me. And you don't see a whole lot of those cases. Quite often, what you'll find is you may have the employer trying, and this is where the, the problem comes in sometimes, the employer is trying to uh, increase its numbers of minorities or otherwise do something it perceives to be good 
in terms of affirmative action or what they think they have to do uh, to satisfy enforcement agencies and may wind up doing it in such of a way that they're actually making a race-based decision that disadvantages the white applicants. And that's where I think from the employer's perspective, they have to be careful. And you are required to take affirmative action to reach out to traditionally underrepresented uh, applicants, such as racial minorities, women, people with disabilities, veterans, and that. But when it comes to the race issue, it, in doing that, you have to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's not saying, well, I'd rather not hire a white applicant just because they're white, because that kind of decision-making can lead you into the problem of race discrimination against whites. Okay. And that's kind of what happened in Ricci, the, the uh, uh, more recent Supreme Court case, where you had the New Haven was attempting to avoid a disparate impact uh, claim potentially by the black applicants because they gave a test. Ricci, as you may recall, was a firefighter, I guess an exam for promotion, and they uh, gave this test, and, and minorities, especially specifically African-Americans, weren't passing it at the same rate as in that case, it was white and Hispanic. And so they, didn't, they wanted to throw out the test results and start over again because they thought, you know, since the pass rates are lower, this could be disparate impact. We're giving the test to everybody, but I it see. seems to be screening out more blacks. So that's the kind of a disparate impact concern that they had. But in order to do that, they were throwing out these results of other people who had done well on the test. That all wound up in the Supreme Court. And they said, well, you know, you have to be, basically you have to be careful because if you're taking this action of throwing out these test results because of the fact that the African-Americans aren't passing at these same rates, it's inherently race-based. The whole reason you're doing this has to do with race. And that's where the disparate impact theory and disparate treatment theory worked together to create a potential situation of, of discrimination against the, uh, the majority. Uh, and because, you know, if you're trying to, you're trying very hard to make sure you, you know, you don't shut the door unnecessarily to minorities. And sometimes in doing that, you know, you wind up shutting the door, taking someone off a list. That's why when I was talking about uh, things that might happen, uh, that, uh, you know, where, where you might have this kind of an issue where you, you know, you've got whites who are the ones who say that they were discriminated against because maybe the contractor in trying to target or hire or reach a goal for minorities does it in such of a heavy-handed way that they actually wind up taking whites out of contention that, you know, actually should have been allowed to compete for the job. Sure. So in terms of compliance and why this is obviously all important to federal contractors, subcontractors, employers in general, what can federal contractors do to avoid reverse discrimination or discrimination against whites and the non-minorities, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. No problem. You can teach me, Sandy. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so, it's so easy to say because that's, that's like the common parlance. But I think when, one of the things you have to do, when one thing that OF always has said is that you know, affirmative action is not meant to be a quota. It's not uh, meant to exclude other people. It's just to make sure that basically you look up and, and be inclusive in who you have in your applicant pool. The problem, I think, sometimes comes in when you take people out of the applicant pool or take people out of contention who were in there in order to make room for uh, another race group. And I think in Ricci, part of the problem was they were throwing out good scores that the whites and Hispanics had made without the proper foundation uh, for that test. When it comes to testing, you have to validate the test, and, and there's a whole science around how to show that a test really is necessary and as non-discriminatory as possible 
to, to meet legitimate business needs, and they hadn't laid the foundation in a way that the Supreme Court uh, was, was willing to approve. If they had laid in a proper foundation, then they may have had a defense to the impact it had on the white and Hispanic Africans, but they hadn't done that. So if you're going to give a test or something and you want to make sure that you're not, discriminate, you're not discriminatory, you can't just look at the test results and say, okay, blacks didn't pass this at the rates that others did, so I'm going to just chuck this test. What you need to do before you ever administer a test is to make sure that you've had it uh, validated. You've got someone who's a psychometrician or industri- you know, they, they're an expert, labor economist maybe, or someone who has the kind of expertise where they can figure out whether or not the test you're going to give is a uh, test that actually tests for skills that are necessary to the particular job and that it doesn't unnecessarily bar other people. The other thing is when you're trying to get, say, a more a, a diverse applicant pool and you're saying, okay, I want a diverse slate of applicants, you don't want to say, take these people off. I've got too many of them. <laughs> you, want to, you want to say, get more of other people on, maybe. Sure. But everybody has to be able to have that opportunity. And the problem comes in when you're taking people out uh, because they're white and you want more of something else. You know, leave them in the pool. Let them all compete equally. But maybe you want a richer pool. So you say, go back and make sure I have a broader a group of people. You know, that way, at least everybody's still competing against one another based on their ability to do the job, rather than saying, okay, I'm not going to even consider you because you're not the race I need. Okay, no, that's a good tip. You know, just going out and finding more candidates, that's why that outreach comes in handy, um, which we've talked about before. Can you provide us with any sort of other examples? I know you brought up uh, the Ritchie decision, but any other examples of what not to do? Well, the, the main thing not to do is that you don't want to, first of all, you don't want to be cavalier about what you say, because a lot of times companies can get themselves into trouble because maybe they're not as sensitive to saying negative things uh, when it comes to uh, hiring whites or, their, or uh, of, of the way they talk about their desire to make a more diverse workforce. You know, we need to get some of X, whatever the race is, in here. You know, those kinds of statements, while, you know, you may be thinking, you may really be thinking, I need more uh, to have a better goal here. I need to have more active affirmative action efforts in this area. If you are going around your business making statements that sound like you want one group and not another, then should somebody feel that they were denied an employment opportunity, you've got all this testimony of what you say. So you need to be, I think, very wise about how you go about it, what you say about it, and not think, okay, I don't have to worry about a discrimination complaint because the candidates that aren't being selected are white. They, you very well may get a discrimination complaint. So don't go around saying, you know, the next uh, management for hire has got to be an African-American. Right. <laughs> okay. And sometimes also, like if you have a position, I, I use the example of a diversity director, where you think the optics are going to be better to have a uh, non-white person running this diversity initiative because somehow that, in your mind, makes your company look like it's more diverse, you can't not select the best candidate just because it so happens that they are white. And you think, why do I have a white person in a diversity role? You can't stereotype like that. You have to look to see who is the best person based on their ability to get this job done to hire for roles. You have to avoid stereotypes of that nature, too. For example, somebody might think, well, I want to have my disability uh, reasonable accommodation uh, uh, initiative headed up by a disabled person. You don't have to always have the person be in the group that they you know, have responsibilities for. You know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. depends on who's most qualified. But if you're just trying to make it look right, 
I think that's when you start getting uh, into difficulties because that creates a barrier that a person who's eminently qualified that happens to be what they are focused on, they can't get the jobs just because they don't look like the kind of person you would expect to be dedicated to oper- you know, having this kind of a career. Okay, so again, just going back to hiring the most qualified individual for the position. That's ideal. <laughs> <laughs> so any uh, best practices, final tips, final thoughts that you want uh, to share with our federal contractors and subcontractors out there? Well, I think the best practice is to try to not really factor uh, erase into the actual selection decision. You, When you're going out and you're trying to get your pools, yes, you have to look up. You've got to make sure that you're uh, attracting a reasonable amount of qualified people from a variety of races based on who's out there and available to work. But I think the actual hiring decision really should be based on who's the most qualified for this job. That's the approach. When I first went to OFCCP, that's really how we were taught. I came in under Shirley Wilshire, and her thing was, you know, we don't do quotas because, you know, that's not what the law is. We just want to have enough qualified people of a variety of, of races and backgrounds and genders and all of that And the idea was if you've got a qualified and diverse pool, you will eventually have a qualified and diverse workforce instead of saying, I'm going to not hire these people because I need more of those people. Well, great. Thanks, Sandy. We appreciate your expertise and personal experiences about this ever-evolving topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening to localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for localjobnetwork.com radio, and thanks for listening.